Thanks for joining us for part two of our two-part Seifarth Shaw Policy Matters podcast, post-paid program, What's a Good Faith Employer to Do? Broadly, the first part of the podcast discusses the paid program's objectives and some of the case law underlying the problems paid look to solve. The second part looks to what employers can do to resolve wage and hour issues post-paid and the approach President Biden's administration may take to self-audit programs and liquidated damages. For full context, we recommend listening to both pieces in order. If a settlement's not enforceable, if we don't have a self-audit program and you can only go through wage and hour or through the courts, you know, what, what should an employer do? What, what does it mean for an employer if, that, if their private settlement isn't enforceable? That's a great question, Scott. I'd like to address it in two pieces, both of which I think are relevant to what we're talking about here. Um, the first is, you know, sometimes this construct, this idea that there's only these two very limited avenues to achieve an enforceable settlement of an FLSA claim, um, sometimes it causes employers, at least at a gut level, to say, well, should we go looking in the first place? Um, if, if our paths for getting an enforceable release for anything we might find are relatively, uh, if it's relatively limited. I think that, that when you sit down and think about it, I think the opposite reaction is, is the right one, and I think it's the one that most employers get to, which is to say, look, you know, if, if we're concerned about our ability to resolve something looking backward in a way that's satisfactory to us, then we should absolutely be looking on, on some level of a regular basis or periodic basis, because if we don't, then you know, if an issue is, is, is in place today and is there a year from now and two years from now, then we've accrued a year or two years of liability, and we're stuck with the same limited options that we were concerned about on day one. Um, the other piece that, that, that at least deserves mention is that the FLSA really incentivizes or rewards those types of efforts. It, it awards uh, it, you know, an employer's good faith efforts to comply with the act in the form of, of having damages not be as hefty as they could be otherwise. The other piece, you know, getting to your question is, you know, what do you do if you find an issue, whether through an audit or if it comes to you in some other way? Um, I think that, that, that there's really, it's, it's the lawyer's answer to this. It, it, it depends. There's a lot that goes into it, in my view. One thing that I think is really important to note right up front, you know, the FLSA is, it's, it is dated legislation from the Depression era that's not been updated so steadily, and it, it's a little bit of a square peg round hole these days, and a lot of issues are not black and white under the FLSA. So just because we identify something today that, that we think should be changed doesn't mean that there's necessarily an issue looking backwards. You know, practices evolve, duties evolve, you know, even we've seen in the last year where someone's working evolves, those sorts of things. And so it, it, as a starting point, I think it, it's really important to note that just because a change needs to be made looking forward doesn't mean that there's certainly something to correct uh, looking backward. Another thing that's important to, to note here is that even if you do look at it and say, you know what, we want to make a change prospectively, but also, you know, we, we have some level of inclination to, to look backward and, and do something about that as well, it can be hard to reconstruct, uh, you know, the facts that give rise to FLSA claims. When you're talking about things like hours worked and duties performed and things like that, you know, lots of times you're just stuck in a difficult position where even if you tried 
to, 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 to think about uh, looking at what a claim could be going backward in time and trying to approximate potential damages and get those to employees, it can be really difficult to do in, in a way that just makes it more uh, trouble than, than, than it could ultimately be worth. The, the last thing I'll say is that you know if, if you go through this, what I consider to be a very individualized type of analysis and say, look, you know, we want to make a change going forward, but we also want to seriously consider uh, issuing some backwage payments looking backward uh, as well, then I think one of the most important things to do is to make sure that you're setting up a slate of facts that looks different from these bad facts or th- these bad cases that we, that we talked about, like Lens Foods. Making sure that in writing, employees are told you know, what they're being paid for, how it was calculated, why, that sort of thing, and then also ensuring that, that we can demonstrate they weren't coerced or pressured to sign or to take the amount, but instead had time to review and understand what's going on. That right there, those types of steps make the, the facts you would be dealing with look very different from a case like Lentz Foods, where the employees didn't understand the FLSA, didn't know about their rights, didn't really understand anything about, about what was going on. It doesn't mean that you're going to have an enforceable settlement. If someone turns around and sues in certain jurisdictions, you, you, you most likely wouldn't no matter what you do, but you can at least set up a set of facts that looks very different and gives yourself a shot in certain areas of the country or with certain judges. One of the other issues that, that folks deal with in the settlement context is, is the liquidated damages aspect, which, you know, there's a complicated history there under the FLSA. Um, you know, generally they're sort of always in play, I would say, particularly under democratic administrations. Um, but liquidated damages can be recovered unless an employer demonstrates good faith and reasonable grounds for its act or omission. Prior to the Obama administration, they typically were only sought through litigation, but then wage and hour made them a standard part of settlements as well. They piloted, I think, in 2010, and then it became just kind of a standard approach. The Trump administration pulled back on that stance, um, and they issued sort of guidance, a list of circumstances where they wouldn't pursue liquidated damages. Uh, I don't think we really know exactly where the Biden administration is going to go, but given that uh, they've already pulled back paid and haven't put out some other self-audit idea, I, I think you can expect to go back. We're going to see more liquidated damages in that settlement context. And the Trump administration kind of moved late on it, so I don't think there was a huge shift early. It's not like this is a reestablished, you know, no, no liquidated damages in settlement. Um, it was a late move. Um, so, you know, I think it's going to be interesting, but I think that's also a piece that a lot of folks, um, detractors of self-audit programs, point to that, these are in the statute, liquidated damages are there, people should get them, you've held this money for X number of time, how do you account for their loss, you know, ability to use those earnings, right, and invest or buy house, whatever it is, uh, the arguments could go on forever. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you already sort of talked about the the risks and how to, to do that individualized assessment what do you think? Do you have any thoughts about whether how, how the Biden administration will approach it or how they, they should? I know I have some thoughts, but I'd love to hear what you think. Yeah, you know, I, I have plenty of thoughts, probably more thoughts than the podcast would fit about how they should and, 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 and what, what should be done here. You know, one thing, you know, a lot of these cases that help to etch out this framework that really limits the path for an enforceable settlement of an FLSA, of an FLSA claim came about in a very different time. You know, the, the FLSA, for a lot of these early cases, was fairly new. Um, it was not the act that it is now, where 
there's tons of litigation around it, tons of plaintiff's attorneys who are focused on it, and a lot of employees who are, who are pretty familiar with their rights, pretty familiar with overtime requirements, pretty familiar maybe not with the letter of each overtime exemption, but with the idea that, that based on duties and pay, some people are exempt and other people aren't. I think that my hope would be that, that you could have an administration that would say, look, you know, these cases that saw this framework came about at a very different time. What we've got now is a much different, uh, you know, a, a much different world where we've got employees who maybe aren't at the same disparate uh, level of, of, of bargaining power. And also where we've got so many cases clogging the courts, why would we not want to have an easier, clearer avenue for well-meaning employers to come to us and say, hey, you know, we found this. You know, we, we, we want to make employees whole. Not, we don't just want to fix it going forward. We want to look backward and make some changes. You know, why not clear the path you know, away from, from an already jammed federal court docket to allow employers to have an easy way to do that? Whether that will happen or not, you know, who knows, Scott? You probably, from your experience, uh, we'll, we'll find out uh, several days before I do what's happening on that front. But, but it seems like it should be, you should be able to, to construct a win-win either way. You know, one point I just want to make really quickly, and, and something you mentioned, Scott, made me think of this. You know, it, we talk a lot, you know, a lot of employers, when you have the conversation, you say, look, you know, we're going to make this change and, 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 and uh, you know, we're, we're going to reclassify an employee or we, were, we, we had a meal break practice that really wasn't what we were trying to do. We're going to fix it going forward. When you start talking about going backward and inevitably you start talking about these limitations on private releases, one thing that I think is really important to stress is that, you know, there's actually two, two points that, that, that I always point out. Number one, you know, in over a decade of practice focusing on these types of cases, I've never seen an employee with employers I've worked with take money in a private settlement. You know, take money from an employer that approached them and said, hey, here's this cash, we identified the issue, we want to make you whole, here, here it is. I've never had someone take the money and then turn around and sue. Also, I'm not saying it can't happen. There's plenty of cases where it has, if you look back over time, but it's not a really common factual setup. The other thing is that it's not as if, you know, if that, that risk comes to fruition, if an employee takes the money and then sues, it's not as if the money just, you know, goes into a black hole as if it was never paid. At a minimum, an employer in that circumstance would have an argument to a set-off. You'd be able to say, look, you know, they filed a claim for which potential damages are 10 or maybe 20 if you include liquidated damages. We already paid them 10. And so at a minimum, while the employee could still try to bring the claim, they can't go and seek 20. They, they could at most seek, you know, the 10 and liquidated damages that they might claim they were owed, that, that they weren't already paid. Hopefully that makes sense. But, yeah, no, I, I think I get that. And, you know, to your, the, the points you were making about the, the avenue that a self-audit program provides, I mean, it does save everyone's resources, right? It, it gives employees the option to receive money they've earned more promptly than a wage and hour investigation or a court proceeding allows. Whether it'll happen, you know, Walsh, Secretary Walsh, Secretary nominee Walsh, I should say, still lingering out there with bipartisan support, haven't yet received as of March 9th his, his confirmation vote from the full Senate. But he comes in as a pragmatist who's willing to work across the aisle, or that's the reputation. And his boss in the White House has a similar reputation. You know, we've referred to them on this podcast as kindred spirits. But, you know, there are ways to partner with interested stakeholders in this space, including the state enforcement entities that had some issues with the, uh, you know, with the paid program. 
could tweak paid, you could you could change it, you could make it narrower, you could make it more employee friendly, whatever you want to do with it, but it provides another avenue to resolve these cases. Um, and I think, you know, a, a, an efficient avenue, it could provide an efficient avenue. Kevin, thanks for sharing so many great insights. Thanks to everyone for joining us on the Policy Matters podcast. To our listeners, please check out all our content on the CIFARC website and reach out to your friendly neighborhood CIFARC attorneys with any questions. One more programming note, CIFARC's Government Relations and Policy Group will present a webinar on Tuesday, March 23rd at 2 p.m. Eastern. Kevin and I will both be there to discuss the Biden administration's labor and employment enforcement activities. Please register on CIFARC's website to join live or keep an eye on the website for the post-webinar recording.